You know that song we sang earlier, just before communion? Blessed be the name. Blessed be your name. And the land that is plentiful where your streams of abundance flow. When I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. I thought of those words quite a bit as I was studying from the passage that we're going to hear from this morning. I thought of how how easy it is to sing those words sometimes, but how hard it is to live through them at different times. I suspect many of you came here this morning and you were able to sing that song with full, bright, happy joy, being in the abundance of God's blessing right now in your life. I suspect that there were others who came here today and were singing that same song, still with joy, I hope, but maybe with a heart that is weighed down by, by some heaviness this year. Uh, some people maybe traveled here and know they traveled here to be with us this morning on the road marked with suffering. But even so, Lord, blessed be your name. We're here at the beginning of a new year, and not one of us knows what's in store. For most of us, there are going to be some times where it feels like God's face is shining brightly on us and his blessing is upon us, and there are going to be other times where it feels like we're walking through the wilderness. And the temptation is going to be to let the situation that we are in to color the way we think about God and to influence the way we talk about him and relate to him. Sometimes it comes out in the way we speak. We talk about uh, times of blessing in terms of God's being so near to us. And then we refer to more difficult times as times where maybe God feels far away. Or it comes out in a different way, where sometimes the good times actually cause us to forget the God who made them possible. And then it turns out to be the hard times where we need to remember him and cry out to him. And on one hand, those ups and downs and the mountaintops and the valleys, it's a regular part of being human. It's part of how we grow. We change and we go through different things. But we can also count on who God is and what he has said is true in his word. We can count on that to not change at all through all of those ups and downs in our lives. And 1 Kings chapter 17 reminds us of God's constant presence, even in hard times or times that are confusing even in times that might be marked by his discipline. We had John uh, read it for us already. That, but if you'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, that's going to be our passage this morning. Before we go any further, let's just stop and pray, though. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray now that as we spend time in it this morning that you will do what only you can do, that you will apply it to our hearts and lives, that you will use it to reveal to us who you really are, how much we really need you, and then you will use it to change us as a result. Help us to look into your word and get a clear glimpse of who you are so we can put our faith and our trust in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So in this story about Elijah, we read verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, Tishbe, in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. The first verse introduces us to a huge figure in Old Testament Israel, Elijah the prophet. He bursts onto the scene with almost no introduction. We don't get a story about who Elijah's parents are 
or what tribe he hails from. We don't even get a story about how God called him to be a prophet. He shows up and literally in the first breath of his prophetic ministry, he is laying down a challenge to King Ahab, the king over the northern tribe of Israel at that time. Now, in contrast to Elijah, Ahab, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, actually gets quite a long introduction. We know all about Ahab. Ahab has the distinction of being the absolutely worst king in a long, unbroken line of terrible kings, one after the other, in the northern kingdom of Israel during the days of the divided kingdom. At the top of his resume of wickedness is this. He married a foreigner a princess from Canaan, from Sidon, named Jezebel. And then he started to worship her god, Baal. Not only that, but he actually built an altar to this false god in the capital of Israel. Think about that. The kind of idolatry that for generations has been spiritually poisoning the nation of Israel. Their king now sets up an official altar to this false god and makes it an official religion in Israel. So at this time, we have King Ahab and Jezebel, who are fostering this false worship of Baal. And then on the other hand, we have Elijah, God's prophet, the one sent to speak the word of the Lord. I just want to quickly point out a few things that we happen to know about Baal and his worship in Canaan that help us realize how he stands opposed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and how he is a very poor substitute. Uh, Baal was part of a polytheistic system, so many gods— whole bunch of gods worshipped in those countries, and Baal was one of the big ones because he was the god you worshipped if you wanted rain. He was the god of fertility. When it rained, the assumption was that, hey, Baal's happy. And when the rains went away and there was a period of drought, the explanation was that Baal had temporarily died. Even this god Baal, every once in a while, he had to die, and he would disappear, and when he went, the rains went with him. And then he would get better and he would come back and the rains would return. So the whole point of Baal worship was to get rain. When it wasn't raining, it was because even Baal had his limitations. He was a popular tempting God in the land of Canaan in Mesopotamia and Israel because that was a whole part of the world where there are no major fresh rivers, no, no sources of fresh water to water your crops, and without the rain, you were in very, very big trouble. What's interesting is that God himself warned his people about this when he was preparing them to get used to leaving Egypt, where they were slaves, and to come into the land where he was bringing them. God warned them about this. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 10, he said, The land you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain of heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. In other words, the land where I am bringing you is a place where you are going to have to live by faith in me. The other inhabitants of that land had invented stories about so-called gods to explain when the rains came and when it didn't. But what they didn't realize was that the true living God, the God of Israel, had always had his eyes on that land, and he had always been the one who had sent the rain. With the passage of Deuteronomy, God goes on. In addition to promising rain for the land, he also gives a warning to the people of Israel. 
Take care, unless your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. So when we see Elijah appear seemingly out of nowhere here in 1 Kings 17, and tell Ahab that as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. It would appear that Elijah has studied God's word and has taken God's word that he spoke back in Deuteronomy very seriously. Seriously enough to show up in front of the most powerful man in the country and present him with this kind of challenge. If you want rain so badly that you're willing to worship that false god to get it, the consequence is going to be that the true Lord will withhold rain from you just like he said he would. And we have a very interesting difference between Baal worship and the living God, whom Elijah represents. Because according to Baal, the rain goes away when Baal goes away. When he dies, then the rain stops. But according to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the living one, it's going to be the presence of Israel's God. That means no rain. Because God is going to be present in judgment on his people's sin. But even in the midst of this word of judgment, we see God also speak a word of provision and care for his servant. In verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. A few things to note here. When God commands Elijah to depart, there are probably two reasons. The first one is obvious in its protection. God is going to protect Elijah from the consequences of the drought in the land by keeping him provided for. God is also going to give Elijah some much-needed protection from Ahab because we can expect that the most evil king in the history of Israel is not going to take very kindly to a prophet who tells him that the rains are going to be shut up because of your idolatry. The second reason, though, that Elijah is asked to depart actually reinforces the judgment that has begun because if only the word spoken through God's prophet Elijah is going to bring the rain back, And if God's prophet Elijah is on the far side of the Jordan River in exile, the drought isn't stopping anytime soon, is it? It's God's word that instructs Elijah to leave and seek seek out the brook. And Elijah obeys immediately. And then the ravens provide food for him exactly the way God's word had promised. The same God who rules over creation and can send or stop the rain can also work through creation and provide for his servant through the ravens. Um, Sometimes we have this mental picture of, you know, the mama bird and the papa bird. They chew up the worm and they spit it into the little baby's mouth. And, oh, what a tender picture of of parental care. Birds are so good to their young. But ravens are the exception. Ravens are nasty birds. They're actually known for not even caring for their own young, which makes it even that more impressive, this miracle that God provides, Elijah gets bread and meat twice a day and drinks fresh water while there's no rain coming down on the land. But the really interesting part about this little episode of God's provision at the brook with the ravens is how it ends. The brook dries up. 
Have you ever experienced a time where it seemed like the face of God was just smiling down on your life and everything was the way you would want it to be, and then all of a sudden, the brook dries up, a source of income disappears, the safety net in the church's mortgage fund runs out, the oil industry takes a dive and it stays there, or there's a bad crop and then another bad crop, bad news from a doctor, or a tearful phone call from a friend. Everything seemed to be going so well, and then this curveball comes out of nowhere, and you are left wondering, what does this have to do with the direction my life was going in last week, God? Is this some kind of mistake? Now, I don't understand why half of the things in my life happen, so don't expect me to be able to tell you why the things in your life happen. But if it helps at all, I'm pretty sure I know why Elijah's brook dried up. Because God let it dry up. Obviously, Elijah knows the direct cause. There was no rain. Brooks dry up when there's no rain. Elijah was the one who had prayed for the rain to stop, so he couldn't have been caught off guard by it. But could the God who sent food by raven have kept that brook running? Of course he could. Of course he could. But God had bigger plans for Elijah than to just keep him fed. Elijah was not going to raise the dead hiding out by the brook with the birds. And the same God has bigger plans for you and I. Bigger plans than to just keep you comfortable. Can God keep you comfortable and safe? Of course he can. Elijah got bread and meat twice a day in the middle of a drought. But God has more in mind than just keeping you safe. God uses both the good and the bad to push us towards his purposes in our lives. The question is, do we believe that God is a make-believe God like Baal? That he's there in the good times, but he's just inexplicably gone when times get hard? Or do we believe what God has said about himself, that he is always there working out his purposes? That's what Elijah believed. And his actions backed up what he believed. So that when the brook dried up, and the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. When he heard that, he arose and he went. Now, Zarephath in Sidon is not a very likely place for a prophet of Israel to get sent. It's far away, it's north and west, and it's beyond the extent of the nation of Israel. It's a foreign land. Not only that, but Sidon is the home country of Jezebel. It's the home turf for Baal worship. God has sent his prophet across a major boundary line. Baal worship has taken hold in the land of Israel, God, by withholding the reins, is showing that he is more powerful than even that one little area that Baal is supposed to have power in. And now we're going to see that the Lord is God and his word is truth, even in enemy territory. Verse 10. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. Which is really quite impressive when we realize a few verses later that the rain had not only stopped in Israel, but the rain had, the rain had stopped in Sidon as well. But she was going to bring him the drink. And before she leaves, he asks her one more thing. He also asks her for a morsel of bread. But that she can't do. And her response in verse 12 is, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. 
Now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And then Elijah makes a request that goes so far beyond what is reasonable, it sounds insanely unfair when we hear it. We can only imagine what it sounded like to this woman. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a cake. Bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Can you imagine saying that to a starving widow who can't afford to feed her son? Bring me food first. But what prompts Elijah to say it is his faith in the word of God, because God had already told him that a widow in Zarephath was going to feed him. And so based on that faith, he makes a promise to this woman. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her husband ate for many days. Her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord spoke by Elijah. The end. That would be a good spot to roll the credits, wouldn't it? At least it would if God's primary purpose, that if the main thing he was working towards was to make sure that Elijah and the widow and her family had food. If that's what God's purpose in history was at that point, then we might as well end the story there. But the Lord who fed Elijah by raven is the same one who caused his brook to dry up. And the Lord whose word has miraculously saved this household will also be the one who visits tragedy upon it. Because he is working, doing something even bigger and even greater in their midst. And the story continues with verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him down on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? I wrestled all week with what title might be appropriate for this sermon, and I kept thinking it was going to be something like, where is God when your brook dries up? And I kept imagining a real simple application, a reminder that God is not limited by your circumstance or your comfort zone. God is not limited by anything in the way he provides for you. And that's true. It's true, and it's all here in this chapter. But there's something else here. There's something that's something grittier at work that just gets stuck in the craw of a title like, Where is God when your brook dries up? The title I finally settled on, When God Stops the Rain, acknowledges something that runs a little deeper than just God can provide at any circumstance. That's true, but there's a bigger and harder truth at work here, which is this. God is behind every circumstance. Of course, I'm not saying that God causes evil or sin or suffering, but he does allow it, and he does work through it. 
If the right way to think about God is to imagine him like Baal, who is there sometimes and then there not other times, then we have an out. Then we don't have to link God with the hard times in our lives. We could just skip over it. But here in these verses, the reaction of the mother and the prophet acknowledge something that cannot just be skipped over. If the word of the Lord can sustain them through the miraculous provision of the flour and the oil, then that same Lord could have prevented this boy from dying. She knows it, and Elijah knows it too. And they wrestle with it. Elijah's just as distressed as the woman at the death of his child. He doesn't get it. He takes the boy upstairs to his own room and he cries out, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon this widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Elijah knows the one who stopped the rain and sent the ravens and dried up the brook and kept the flour and the oil going. Elijah knows that the Lord is powerful enough to be responsible. He's not just asking, why did this happen? Elijah wants to know, why, Lord, have you done this? And I want you to know that that is a question that it's okay for you to ask God. Who else would you ask anyway? Often we feel like it would somehow show that our faith is too small if we were to ask God a question like, why? As if the most faithful thing to do would be to make up an excuse for God when things get hard. To treat him like Baal, like an imaginary God that we can explain and put in a box. God works in mysterious ways right? Everything happens for a reason. Well, those things are true. Everything does happen for a reason, and God's ways are so far above our ways. But if we believe, like Elijah did, that when we are talking about God, we are talking about the Lord who is sovereign over everything, whose word is utterly and completely reliable and powerful, then we have to realize that his control over our lives includes even the hard parts. That can be hard to wrestle with sometimes. But read through the Psalms. They encourage you to wrestle through that in the presence of God. God is always present. Sometimes that means he's present in judgment. Sometimes he's present in discipline. Sometimes he's present in blessing. We'll never know the fullness of what God is doing in any situation this side of glory. But I can assure you of this. God is always working out his larger purposes in every single situation. Always. God was at work at this situation in Zarephath. God is about to demonstrate that not even the barrier of death can stand in his way. And he will do that in a way that unmistakably proves that Elijah is his prophet, through whom he speaks his word to Israel and to the world. The word of the Lord from Elijah will get an absolute stamp of approval from God as a result of this this event. Verse 21, then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And this is incredible. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him over to his mother. And Elijah said, see, Your son lives. Listen carefully to the mother, her reaction. This is the final statement in this story. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth 
is truth. This chapter has been about something bigger than even this woman and her son and this demonstration of victory over death. This woman's final, the widow's final confession helps us to see it a little more clearly. 1 Kings 17 is about the absolute reliability of the word of God and the complete association of the word of God with this man through whom God is speaking, the prophet Elijah. The purpose of this chapter has been to confirm beyond the shadow of any doubt that Elijah is speaking the very word of God and that nothing can stop it. If we look back to verse 1, at what God is doing in Israel at this time, we realize that God is using his prophet to speak judgment on the, sin of his, on the sins of his people. That confrontation with Ahab, there will be no rain, the, the waters will be withheld. The message of this chapter, if you're ready for it, it, is this. We get to see Elijah fed by ravens, the widow sustained by the oil and the flour, the son brought back from the dead, But the message in the chapter is nothing can stop the word of the Lord and nothing can prevent God's judgment on the sin of his people. I know, I know, usually a chapter with so many miracles would lead to a sermon with a more optimistic punchline than judgment is certain. But every single time God has miraculously provided in this chapter, it has been in response to something where his already active presence in judgment was there. In Elijah's ministry, we see the word of God in judgment confirmed, but we get to see it confirmed through instances of grace, instances of provision. And that opens the door for me to talk just a little bit about the importance of the way the New Testament portrays Jesus. Because in the New Testament, we consciously see Jesus as shown to us as someone who is like Elijah, only greater. Like Elijah, Jesus considered himself to be sent not only to the nation of Israel, but also to those outside of it, particularly to those who were considered outcasts and unwelcome. Like Elijah, Jesus had a reputation for rather directly confronting religious hypocrites. And like Elijah, Jesus performed many miracles in God's name in order to to prove that he was who he said he was, that he was doing God's work. In Luke chapter 7, particularly, we have recorded one occasion where Jesus raised from the dead the only son of a widow. And the way the story unfolds seems deliberately, intentionally designed to make us think about Elijah's ministry. Here's a part of Luke's report of that miracle. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the coffin. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. There are enough similarities that we are supposed to think about Jesus' actions there in light of Elijah's actions earlier. But there's not just similarities, there are some differences too. Remember, Elijah placed the child on his own bed and agonized over him and stretched his body out over him and pleaded with the Lord to save him, almost as if Elijah could give his own life to save this child, which he he could not significantly. Elijah has to cry out in anguish to the Lord and hope that the Lord will hear his voice. How does Jesus perform the same miracle? He says, get up. And no sooner has Jesus spoken the words, get up, than the dead man sits up and begins to speak. 
The difference, of course, is that Elijah was desperate for God to hear his voice and respond, but when Jesus spoke, his words were the very words of God. They were immediately effective. Luke's account here helps us to see that there is one like Elijah who has come. But this Jesus who came is far greater than Elijah ever was. Just as in 1 Kings 17 ends with the response of the widow, with Elijah's status as prophet being verified beyond all doubt, listen to the response at the end of this story when Jesus raised that widow's son. Fear seized everyone there and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. If Elijah's message of divine judgment was absolutely trustworthy, how much more trustworthy then are the promises that God spoke through his son Jesus? The same God who sent the prophet to stop the rain also sent his son, not to judge the world but to save it. Elijah had said that flour shall not be spent The jug of oil will not be empty, but Jesus Christ, who is greater than Elijah, said, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Drink, all of you, this is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Elijah cried out and said, why, Lord, would you take this widow's widow's son from her? But God's own son would one day cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would cry that out while he hung on the cross to satisfy God's righteousness. Elijah and Jesus both returned widow's sons to them. But the fact is, both of those boys' bodies would once again fail them. It was a temporary fix to a much deeper problem. But what Jesus accomplished on the cross made it possible for eternal death, which results from sin, to be defeated forever. Jesus purchased with his blood eternal life for all those who believe. Death could not hold the author of life. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving in the greatest demonstration ever the power of God over life and death. So how do we respond to what we've heard from God's word this morning? I'm going to suggest two things in order of importance, though. First, ask yourself, are you absolutely sure that the object of your faith, the one that you pray to, the one that you walk in faith before, is the one and only living God who is restricted by nothing? The one who acts in righteous judgment of sin and who also, in untold mercy and love, saves those who call on his name, even the outcasts and the powerless. Is it that God who you trust? Be very careful that you're not just playing at some kind of faith where you have the right name for God but you just keep treating him like that make-believe idol. Don't worship a God who is only there when things are going well but who doesn't actually get an ounce of your faith or your trust when things get hard and you have to make a tough decision. The word of God is absolutely certain. It's guaranteed that God will judge all sin, and it's guaranteed that God will forgive and restore and give the gift of eternal life to everyone who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Jesus' death on the cross. The widow in Elijah's day said, Now I know that the word of the Lord is truth. And if you can't say that you know, then it's time to earnestly seek God in prayer and ask him to show you. 
Secondly, if you do know, if you know that that is the God who you worship, no doubts about it, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, you belong to him, he can do anything in your life, then let your knowledge of who God is and how he works shape the way you live your life. This is where some of the, some of the background themes in this passage come back out and start to inform the way we can live. Are you aware of how serious sin is on a daily basis? How God's word exposes it and confronts it and condemns it? How do you respond when a brook in your life dries up? Do you keep trusting in the way God provided for you in the past as if that's the only way who can do it? Or do you put your eyes on God himself and let him lead you to where he's bringing you next? How do you view strange new situations that you're put in? Or strange new people that get put in your life? Do you have a spirit that's willing to be used by God wherever he might place you? Wherever he might ask you to go? Whoever he might want you to talk to? And finally, both Elijah and Jesus looked desperate widows in the eye, and they said, fear not. Do you make decisions that are based on fear, or do you face them as if you personally know the God who is Lord over life and death? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we hand over to you our, even our very ideas about, who, about you and who you are. We ask that if they are untrue, or if they are too small, or if they are not worthy of who you are, we ask, Lord, that you help us to see you better. Help us to do this through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you've given to us, who are your children because of Jesus. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and don't let us settle for a smaller, convenient way of thinking about you. Show us Jesus in all of his glory, so that we can trust in him completely and follow him without fear. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for the fact that that your righteous judgment on sin has been satisfied in your righteous provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died so that your wrath could be satisfied and we could be restored to relationship with you. Lord, we pray that as we begin this new year, in 2016, that you will open our eyes to see what you are doing around us and in us and through us and give us the courage to follow you in obedience to your word, in obedience to your son and your leading. Do whatever you need to do in our lives to keep us trusting you and wholly reliant upon you. We pray all of these things in the worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.